thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And in this half hour, the person who survived a leg amputation 31,000 years ago, breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince and dine like a pauper. But does the science support that dietary adage, or is it just a tasty myth? And video GP consultations, how do they measure up against face-to-face appointments? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. The skeleton of a teenager showing signs of the world's earliest amputation has been uncovered in a cave in Borneo. Researchers had been searching the area for cave paintings when they stumbled instead on a burial site. Archaeologist Charlotte Roberts from Durham University has written a commentary on the findings and gave us her reaction to what's been discovered. An absolutely fascinating find, evidence for the earliest amputation that anybody has known in a skeleton. And this is 31,000 years ago. What have they found and where? They found a 19 to 20-year-old person and this person seems to have had part of their lower leg and foot amputated. And what's more, this amputation has healed extremely well. The person survived for a number of years before they died. The authors suggest that the amputation was done when this person was between 11 and 14 years old. And then the evidence of the healing suggests they live for another six to nine years afterwards. It's quite incredible. How do we know it was an amputation and not, for example, a wild animal? Well, the cut made by whatever tool they used is very straight. And if an animal had grabbed this person's leg and ripped it off, it would be a much more irregular break to the end of the bone. We wouldn't have had any kind of metal instruments. They would have been using stone tools, wouldn't they? So how on earth do you hack through bone with a stone tool? Well, yes, we assume that it's a stone tool or some other thing that they found around which could be used. Um, It would take a long time because obviously nowadays people use very sharp instruments to do amputations in a much more controlled environment than you would expect 31,000 years ago. So how would they have done basic things like anaesthesia they wouldn't have had any formal anaesthesia do we have any sort of documented evidence of how they might have controlled pain for what must have been an excruciating thing if this took a long time to carve through the leg bone of an 11 year old what would they have perhaps done obviously we haven't got contemporary historical documents like you have in more recent periods of time to tell us what sort of medicine and surgery was being practiced and and how they managed pain Um, and maybe how they did sedate people. But we can only assume that 
like today, uh, people use resources from the natural environment, herbs that would induce anaesthesia, that would manage the pain that would happen during this operation. Do you think this was therapeutic or could it have been some kind of ritual or some other kind of tradition? A number of reasons why you might amputate someone's limb and it could be to remove a diseased body part or an injured body part. could be because of death of body tissues and today you know, someone who has diabetes and has poor circulation uh, may actually have to have part of their body amputated, usually their foot. But we do know from historical records that people are all also had amputated limbs for a punishment. So we don't really know why they did this amputation. Uh, we can only hypothesise according to what we know today. So what do you think this tells us about how people were behaving, what they did? How does this move us forward in terms of our view of what our ancestors more than 30,000 years ago were doing and how they were conducting themselves? Well, first of all, we have to remember that medicine was a key development for societies. And we assume that when people started to live in settled communities and farmed animals and plants, then they developed methods of treating ailments as time went on. But this is very, very early evidence for deliberate intervention in the form of an amputation of this person's limb. But I do think that caring is really an inherent part of being human and to assume that people in the past didn't do these sorts of things to help their kids and kin um, seems ridiculous. This person was obviously looked after during their life. They survived this amputation and then they were carefully buried in a cave when they died. So I think this really shows some incredible care from the community where this person lived. So I think it really challenges the view that medicine came late in our history. It's obviously a rare find. This is a hunter-gatherer society. And you think, well, if you're a hunter-gatherer society, you're usually on the move. So they obviously invested in the care of this person, even though they couldn't do what they would normally do in that society. We don't know whether they were given some support um, to walk with afterwards, an artificial limb of some sort made out again of natural resources. But I think this is a, an astounding find. And I think it just changes our views generally about what people could achieve in the past in terms of treatment of ailments. And also, presumably, they must have had quite good communication as well. They must have been linguistically quite able in order to seek someone out who could help reassure this person then perform this procedure and then rehabilitate them that that must have involved quite a lot of rich communication so does that inform any of those aspects of our understanding yes you just wonder whether it was someone in their particular community or another community nearby that that was willing to do this sort of operation or whether it was someone who just came forward and says look I'll try this and see if it works. I mean, thinking again, in, in more recent periods of time, in the 16th, 17th century Europe, there were bone setters who went around villages setting bones that were broken. That knowledge and skill was passed down the generations. Whether that was happening 
all that time ago in Borneo, we'll never know, but it, it's nice to reflect on that as a possibility. Certainly is. What a fascinating finding. That was Charlotte Roberts. And um, the findings that she was commenting on just there have been announced in the journal Nature, if you want to look them up, by Griffith University Australia's Tim Maloney. Breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince and dine like a pauper. Now, for as long as I can remember, that's been the dietary dogma for people wanting to remain a healthy weight. And the argument was that if you front load your calorie intake across the day like this, it benefits your metabolism and means you're less likely to pile on the pounds. But is it actually true? Well, it turns out that in metabolic terms, at least, it's wrong. Nevertheless, it could still be valuable in an, as an aid to weight control because while this dining pattern isn't going to affect how many calories you ultimately burn, it will affect potentially how many you eat in the first place. James Titko got his teeth into the subtleties of the science with Aberdeen University's Alexandra Johnston. Breakfast like a king and dine like a pauper is quite old-fashioned. We know that what we eat influences our health. But what this study that we've published recently looks at is does when we eat specifically impact on weight loss? Does timing of eating influence the ability for the body to mobilise and use those calories so that we can get the maximum amount of weight loss? So we have quite a specialised facility at the Rowett in that we can prepare all the diets individually for our volunteers. And that really helps us achieve this type of very controlled studies where we can look at mechanistic nutrition. We had a big breakfast and a small dinner menu, and we had a small breakfast and a big dinner menu. So in each subject acts as their own control. So they're, what we're ostensibly doing is comparing um, subject on each of the diets. So we're not comparing subjects between each other. It's a within subject design. So that's really important because we are interested in appetite and appetite is a subjective sensation. And what we found was that weight loss was almost identical over the four week period on each diet. And that suggests to us that actually time of day is not relevant in terms of energy metabolism. Can you tell me a bit more about your subjects? Were they people who were aiming to lose weight? In the study, we use an opt-in approach. So yes, these are people who were extensively overweight or obese, but healthy. So it's people who are interested in taking part in our diet studies and have a commitment and time to only eat the food that we provide over a nine-week period. So you mentioned that on both diets, there was no change overall in their weight loss or gain. Does that mean we can consign this idea of front-loading calories early in the day to old wives' tale status? Is a diet that promotes eating at certain times of the day unlikely to be effective? So that's an interesting question, isn't it? Does time of day have any influence on appetite or energy balance? And actually what we found is that it does. So what we, our main finding is that it didn't influence weight loss in terms of energy metabolism and energy expenditure. But we did find something interesting, and that was that the big breakfast regime had an impact on appetite such that subjects reported feeling more full and less hungry when they were eating a big breakfast compared to a small breakfast. 
Now, that, I think this could be really useful in what I call the real world. So it's extrapolating out our results for those people who are looking for strategies to help them lose weight, then this could be beneficial. And this could be this will be an area for future research for us. In that one of the reasons that people fail to comply to a weight loss diet is because they feel hungry. So if you start the day with a bigger breakfast, then that can potentially have an impact on behaviour, because remember, feeding is a form of behaviour. And if you can stick to the calorie deficit over a period of time, then that type of regime could be helpful. I still maintain breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Alexandra Johnston there and uh, her paper describing that work, which just published this week in the journal Cell Metabolism. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, are medical diagnoses over Zoom as good as a face-to-face appointment? We will find out. But before that, a project to develop rapid diagnostic tests for infections that uses the Nobel Prize-winning substance graphene is underway at the Cambridgeshire-based company Paragraph. They've pioneered a way to make this carbon-based material at scale and highly consistently, and they plan to use this technique to produce mobile phone-sized chemical sensor devices that can pick up, in just a matter of minutes or less, markers of disease in just minute quantities of blood. Malcolm Stewart is Paragraph's business development director. He's with us. How are you going to do this? How will these sensors work, Malcolm? Well, we'll take a sample of, say, blood, which contains lots of different biomarkers for diseases and conditions, put it onto a a silicon chip-type device made of graphene, which is tuned to look for a particular chemical or protein or something, which tells the, the clinician that you've got a condition. And within a couple of minutes from just a drop or two of blood, we can tell perhaps if you have an infection or maybe even a more serious disease. What's special about graphene here? Well, graphene's a really interesting material. Uh, A single layer of carbon atoms in a lattice shaped like honeycombs. Um, And it's incredibly conductive. And that's one of the properties that makes it ideal for diagnostics. We want to see very small quantities of these chemicals in the blood. And if you've got a very conductive material like graphene, uh, you'll be able to see them more easily. How do you come up with the sensors in the first place that you're going to stick on that sheet of graphene that will find those biomarkers? So what we do is we take different chemicals and join them together. And at the top of that little stack is something like an antibody. And the antibody is tuned to look for a bacterium or a virus like COVID, for example, uh, and it, when in contact with the blood or the saliva that we put onto it, will find that protein or the virus uh, in in the sample. And when it binds, that changes the electrical behaviour of the graphene in a way that you can detect. It's a sort of chemical signature or electrical signature. This is bound, therefore this amount is there of that thing. Yeah, exactly. So 
when a binding event happens, we get a change in the electrical property, which we can measure very easily. And as that change accumulates, we can then tell how much of that chemical is in, or biomarker is in, is in the sample. Now, you said minute quantities. How minute are we talking about? Because in, in the lab that I help to run, we're talking about a finger full of blood, big, mm. big volumes. There's also been a company that now is somewhat infamous that made their name saying they were going to analyse tiny quantities of blood. They went, they went down the tubes. It was all, it was all mm. hocus pocus. Can you really do this with tiny quantities of blood? Well, we think we can. And, and it's about tuning the chemistry and taking the time to, to get all the data to, to show that we can. We'll do studies in, in real humans uh, in, in the next few years to show that we can. And we compare ourselves to devices which are currently being used in hospitals to make sure that our performance is as good as clinicians require. And presumably this has got lots of applications, not just in this country, but worldwide, because if it is small, it is cheap, and it's very sensitive, but easy to manufacture, you could presumably roll this out third world, many, many places, resource-poor settings. Very much so, and, and our, our hope is to get into helping low- and medium-income countries deal with simple infections like COVID through to much more complex tropical disease-type infections, which, for example, spread very rapidly. Um, so, yes, very much we have on our sites to, to make sure this is a, a product that can be useful worldwide. We wish you luck, and thank you very much, Malcolm, for thank coming you. in to tell us about it. That's Malcolm Stewart from Thanks. Paragraph. Definitely diagnostically, I'd say, one to watch. Now, talking of diagnoses and medical consultations, newspapers at the moment are stuffed full of letters to editors from patients who are disgruntled that they can't get face-to-face appointments with their GP. And this is partly because medical consultations have moved very heavily towards the use of video and telephone calls. And this itself is partly down to what happened during COVID-19. But it's also becoming increasingly common because pressed practitioners that have seen, in some cases, their list sizes climb by 20% without any corresponding increase in the doctor's numbers find that they can assess more patients more quickly if they do resort to these sorts of digital approaches. Now, some, particularly younger people, do welcome and report that they enjoy this as a convenient way to see the doctor. But others are much less enamoured. But surely the crucial question must be, is this a safe way to practice medicine? Well, Bart Demarschulk, who is a neurologist and a digital care specialist at the Mayo Clinic has actually done the study now to find out whether this is safe and effective medicine. Our principal objective was to determine the diagnostic accuracy of the provisional diagnoses that clinicians make when they assess a patient by video telemedicine in the patient's home compared to diagnoses established in a traditional in-person clinic evaluation. And we reasoned that the true scenario to test were patients presenting with a brand new clinical problem. I guess the only way to do that then is is to do a telemedicine diagnosis and then see the patient for real and see if you change your mind, having seen them face-to-face versus seeing them on a Zoom call or similar. That's exactly what we did. As the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 pandemic and we anticipated that there would be a tremendous rise in the utilisation of video telemedicine, 
we launched this study. This was a review of patients at Mayo Clinic presenting with a new clinical problem by video telemedicine to their home, and then were subsequently seen in a traditional in-person clinic environment. And the principal result was that in 87% of the patients, the provisional diagnosis following the video telemedicine consultation matched the diagnosis established at the traditional in-person visit. It's really interesting that you say that because when I went to medical school, one of the first things that we were taught was more than 85% of the time, you should be able to make a diagnosis just on the basis of the history, what the patient tells you. So your numbers line up perfectly with someone else's statistic. But what that does mean is that 15% of the time it didn't. So what did you discover about those 15% of diagnoses where you had to change your mind? Precisely. So for clinical conditions that required a traditional in-person physical examination, and for those conditions where the diagnosis rested upon the result of a diagnostic study, the diagnostic accordance of the video telemedicine visit was less than the average. Uh, We also discovered that, not surprisingly, clinical conditions like psychiatry, psychology, had high diagnostic concordance, and other conditions like ear, nose, and throat, ophthalmology, dermatology, had a lower diagnostic concordance. Are you advocating then that maybe what we do is, is some kind of hybrid approach where rather than just see everyone initially on a video call, that there are some aspects of medicine which are really very well practiced via this sort of route, but other things we really do need to see people. And maybe we we could have some kind of dichotomy there where we see face-to-face complaints that do look like they, they really do need to be seen in person, but there are some things that can very safely be handled remotely. That's correct. The main message is that given that this study was launched at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, the main result is quite reassuring to our patients the vast majority of their clinical concerns and indications they brought forward were sufficiently diagnosed by video telemedicine. But the learning yielded the fact that for some conditions, the diagnostic concordance was high and for others low, and that this this might be one of several ways in which to, to tailor the video telemedicine examination to those indications and clinical problems and diagnoses where, it's, where it lends itself uh, uh, best. Over time, some clinical specialties have improved upon the video examination. For example, uh, there are colleagues at Mayo Clinic that have uh, published their work uh, with with, uh, improving the musculoskeletal examination by video telemedicine, teaching their patients how to help the clinician over video uh, perform a better physical examination in the absence of being able to lay hands. So uh, this is clearly an evolving field. Were any of the things where you had to change your diagnosis or management subsequent to seeing the person face to face tantamount to a clinical incident in the sense that were you not to have seen that person face to face, it would have turned into a life threatening or harmful situation for that patient? Yes, we did study morbidity and mortality. All the patients in the cohort we followed for six months after the the data collection and 31 died, but in only one of those was the cause of death determined to be possibly related to 
a diagnostic error. So although the incidence was low, the study indicated that it's conceivable. So what's your your reading of all this then? And what would you say should be the model then based on your learning? Almost certainly there are going to be a multitude of digital healthcare interventions or interactions between clinicians and their patients and we will be practicing in a hybrid model. I think in instances of primary care, video telemedicine is more likely to be successful for established patients. And for those patients that are presenting for the first time to a primary care provider with a new clinical condition, a video first approach is quite reasonable. And then escalating those cases where the clinical problem either requires a diagnostic test a physical examination, or is in one of the categories that we've learned that has a traditionally lower diagnostic concordance to be expeditiously elevated to an in-person examination. Interesting, isn't it? What's your view? Tell us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. That was Bart Demoschalk, and the study he was describing is just out in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Network Open. Food security is at the top of the priority list of problems that's worrying policymakers right now. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has poured fuel on the fire, cutting off grain supplies for many and also driving up fertiliser prices. So a new soil management scheme dubbed the Precision Compost Strategy, designed to see if compost use in large-scale agriculture can improve crop yield and soil health and, crucially, divert bio-waste from landfill where it can generate harmful greenhouse gases, is a welcome initiative. Suzanne Schmidt from the University of Queensland took Will Tingle through the concept. Well, the benefits really are higher yields and getting more organic carbon into soils. So we calculated that with such a global strategy, we could deliver, you know, in some situations, huge benefits that in dry and warm climates, soils that are acidic or have a sandy or clay texture, that compost achieved up to 40% more yield than conventional practice using mineral fertilizer. But when we looked at it globally, so in other words, all the soils and climates and crops, we estimated that designer compost would increase the production of major cereal yields by 4%, which is over 96 million tonnes of grain annually. And for comparison, this is about double the grain yield harvested in Australia in a good year. So it's a substantial amount. And then the other benefit is that such strategy has the technological potential to restore about 19 billion tonnes of organic carbon in soil. And that is nearly a third of current topsoil carbon in these upper 20 centimetres of soil. And so we propose that compost really should become part of humanity's toolkit for reversing climate change. So would this new method be more cost-effective than current compost management, if you can call it that? That's a good question, which we actually did not investigate in our study. But we can assume that some costs are reduced because less mineral fertiliser is used. But depending on how much compost is supplied to fields, transport costs may be higher. And one would, however, also need to include environmental costs, such as water pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from conventional fertiliser versus compost, but then also considering cost of, of the waste you know, going into landfill. And we have started to address this question now using economic tools. There are some concerns that creating compost can lead to a production of nitrous oxide, which is a potent greenhouse gas. Could this method of compost management that you're proposing lead to an increased amount of nitrous oxide in the atmosphere? That is a really good point, And that's why we included nitrous oxide emissions in our global analysis, because adding organic matter to soil in the presence of nitrogen has been shown to increase nitrous oxide emissions. 
But we did not find evidence that compost systematically increases nitrous oxide emissions over those derived from mineral fertilizer. But we didn't have quite as many data as we had for yield and soil organic carbon, and it would be good to investigate this more. But what we did see when compost was blended with mineral fertilizer to nourish, for example, nitrogen-demanding crops, which is part of the um, precision compost strategy, we found that higher efficiency ensued. So in other words, compost used more of the supplied nitrogen in such organo-mineral fertilizer combination. And that means that less nitrogen is wasted and lost from soil. And indirectly, that may mean that also less nitrous oxide is produced. This compost management system could increase food production by 4%, I think it said. So this is something that the world sorely needs. How realistic would it be to roll out this new strategy on a worldwide scale? Well, as an optimistic scientist and educator, I would say that it is entirely achievable. Um, There is now a lot of interest in transforming waste to value as part of the circular economy. And there are many organic waste that can be used for composting. So farmers can make their own compost using farm waste and manures. City councils can use organic waste from households and green spaces. And wastewater managers have biosolids that can be composted. Suzanne Schmidt from the University of Queensland, and that paper just came out in Nature Food. And there we must leave it. That is the end of our news roundup for this week. But do keep an eye out for early next week's deep dive on dogmas when we're going to reveal some of the shaky science that is still supporting the study and practice of established fields like zoology and medicine in 2022. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Coming up on next week's show, we are hosting a Q&A featuring some of the finest minds in the fields of chemistry, astronomy, climate studies and medicine. So if you have any burning questions on these topics that you need answering, please contact us at chris at nakedscientist.com. That's chris at nakedscientist.com and we hope to see you there. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.